You're listening to the Desperation Podcast, a generation in desperate pursuit of God. www.desperationonline.com. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to be your sons and your daughters. Thank you for the privilege to feast at your table at your house. We thank you that you rescued us from the muck and the mire and the pig slop. And Lord God, that you provided for us a place to live. Lord, that you, Lord God, are the one that put a ring on our finger, that gave us dignity, that gave us a future. And Lord, we we ask, Lord, that as we continue to talk about the life that we have in your house, the love that you possess for us, God, we want to be fueled with the knowledge of the love of God. We want it to be in us. We want it to be what we talk about. We want to know how how vast it is, how wide, how deep, how high. God, we want to often be talking about your love, God. We want to often be talking about you. So Holy Spirit, would you pour out the love of God into our hearts tonight, God? I pray that you would help those that feel tired, that feel weak, that feel broken, that feel burnt out. And Lord Jesus, that you would be the source of their strength this evening. God, that you would be their all in all, not their zeal, not their dedication and devotion, but you yourself, the God of the ages, would you come and do a miracle and help, uh, help us to know your love. We love you, God. Amen. The number one person who has the most real estate in the scripture, in other words, the most ink on pages, if you're going to read about one individual who fills up most of the scriptures, the number one person is Jesus. Everybody know that? All right. All right, but I'm going to talk about number two tonight. I'm going to talk about the person who is, there's the second most amount of words, the most amount of paragraphs, sentences, chapters about, other than Jesus, is King David. And so when you look at the scriptures, it's interesting because we find this guy, this King David, and the Bible has a lot to say about him. Now, immediately when we think of King David, most of us immediately think about the greatness of King David. You automatically think, phenomenal shepherd boy on a harp, writing songs to God. You think uh, much of the Psalms, maybe you're thinking of, um, you know, uh, how how David was a phenomenal psalmist. or, Or maybe you're thinking of how David killed Goliath. And so many of you are are, are imagining veggie tales and you know David more as broccoli than you do a man or something like that because the familiarity of the Old Testament is primary in veggie tales or Superbook. Uh, but, but so you think maybe of David as a giant killer, a phenomenal warrior. Uh, some of us, when you think of David, you know, immediately what comes to your mind is that he was a king. He's probably the great, you know, one of the greatest kings Israel ever had. I don't, I don't know, but I'm going to be a, a little edgy tonight and talk to you a little bit about this guy, David, because realistically, when you look through the scriptures, you find more than just a heroic, incredible King David. You find, actually, there's so much of his storyline that in addition to seeing the greatness of his success, we find some unbelievable weaknesses. In the life of David, we find some phenomenal, a little bit scary realities of his, of his flesh, of his brokenness, of his humanity. I mean, if you look and you just kind of read through the life of David, you can read through First and Second Samuel. You can read kind of a Reader's Digest version in the Chronicles, you know. But when you just read through and you just look at David's life, David obviously starts out well and most of us, you know, we know 1 Samuel 13 and we think a little bit about, you know, that all of us like, especially me, you know, 
man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart, you know, the little guy's going to be king, and most of us have kind of imagined, you know, that's us, and we kind of picture that, and David starts off well, and he's doing incredible, and, and then David goes, and he's serving his brothers, and then he kills Goliath, and Goliath looks at him and says, you know, I'm going to tear you apart, and he says, you know, you come to me with, you know, sword and shield, but I come to you in the name of God, and he's heroic, and he's off to this incredible start, and all of a sudden, the girls you know, in the land are singing, David is slain, or Saul is slain his thousand, but David is 10,000. And man, David's doing the stuff for God, and it seems awesome. But, but I want to I highlight a, a side that you don't hear most sermons on. I, I want to talk a little bit. I want to look at some of these ideas of David, because if you look, David actually, he's running from Saul. And there's a story in 1 Samuel where He's running from Saul and he goes to the priest at Nob and he asks for shelter. He asks for some bread. And, and actually, Saul's trying to kill him. And when they say, hey, where, where's, you know, your entourage? What, where's, why are you alone? He actually lies to the priest at Nob and he says, well, I'm running an errand for the king. So if you want to be honest, you can look and right here, I mean, recorded in the number one best-selling book of all time, we have David as a liar. And not only that, but it's interesting because when he's talking to the priest at Nob, he, 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 he asks if they have, you know, anything for him. They say, we have a sword here. He says, really? They say, yeah, actually, we have Goliath's sword. He goes, oh, I'm familiar with that sword. <laughs> and then they show him the sword. And you know what the phrase that David says, what comes out of his lips? He says, give it to me, for there's none like it. And in his latter years, he's actually praising the sword that he once defeated. And at one point, when he actually condemned it, he said, you come to me with spears and swords, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And at one point, that sword wasn't impressive to him. But right now, he's like, ooh, give it to me. There's none like it. He's praising the very sword that he used to stand on a battlefield opposing. So David's a liar. David's kind of, in a sense, I mean, he's praising the sword of Goliath. Keep going. And David... Actually, you know, Saul is the king of Israel. And so because Saul is the king of Israel, he'll go anywhere in Israel. But really, there's one place that Saul won't go. It's to the Philistine lands. I mean, Saul's not going to go to over. He's not going to cross the boundary line. So David decides, I know where I'm safe. Rather than staying in the nation that he's anointed to be the next king of, he decides he's going to go cross over into the Philistine land and be, hang out with the Philistines, hang out with, with them. So he lies again, he lies to King Achish, all right, king of Philistines. He lies to him. Then he pretends to be like retarded, which is a bizarro story. He starts slobbering on himself, going crazy, acting like a madman. I'm just giving you the resume of David here a little bit. And then what's interesting is he actually goes and instead of fighting for God's armies in the sense of fighting for Israel... He aligns himself with Achish and he goes to war with the Philistines against Israel. You want to talk about a place of compromise. I mean, most of us don't imagine the war story of the day that David went with the Philistines to go back and fight against not only the nation that he's anointed to be king, but he's the great war hero that at one point was the guy defeating Goliath. And in Israel, the day that he took Goliath out was really one of the greatest military victories in Israel's history. We know it mostly as a Sunday school story. 
But it really was a phenomenal military victory when David defeated them. So not only is he lying to the priest at Nam, not only is he praising the sword of Goliath, he's lying to King Achish, he's fighting with King Achish. Then Achish says, Achish guys actually look at him and say, you know, Achish, we don't really trust this guy, David. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a day where he killed our champion. And I don't know what I think about David going with us into battle. And Achish says, you're probably right. And David, and he sends him back to a little town called Ziklag in 1 Samuel 30. And then we know the story. Saul dies. David becomes king. David sees Bathsheba. He decides to have Uriah intentionally killed her husband. Why? So that he can lay with his wife. So he's an intentional murder planning guy. Then, and he commits adultery. Bathsheba. So he's a liar. Lies at Nob. Praises Goliath's sword. He's an adulterer. He fights against the armies of God. He goes to battle against the Israelite army. Conspiracy for murder. Adultery. I'm just curious. Are there any adulterers, murderers, and liars in the last couple years right here? I mean, when you look at this resume, don't answer that. If you look at this resume, <laughs> rhetorical question. <laughs> I saw three people in the back. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, when you look at this man, David, most of the time we think of the phenomenal giant killing, phenomenal king. But I want you to look at that resume and then look, Acts 13. We're talking years later, Luke is going to write, about David, he makes some comments about him in Acts 13. And look at this. In verse 22, it says, After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, oh, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Acts 13, 36, look at this. For when, God had ser- for when David had served God's purpose in his own generation... This is kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? Look at the reality, not just of David's successes, but let's talk about the reality of David's massive, gaping, huge failures. I'm a little nervous giving this message tonight. I'm afraid afraid I'm going to see David in heaven. He's going to say, your parents named you after me and you had to dog me to the furnace. I'm going to be like, oh, sorry. (laughs) Here's what I want you to get. If you go right through those ideas about David and then you see that it was recorded of David's life. He's a man after God's own heart according to the Holy Spirit writing the scriptures here through Luke. He's a man after my own heart and he fulfilled the purpose that I had for him in his own generation. What is it about David that he could have such massive failures and at the conclusion of his life be defined as successful. I mean, what is it about this man, David, 
Because most of us would go, adulterer, liar, murderer, conspiracy for murder, write him off. No way. He's out. I don't even know if he's going to make heaven. But he gets so much ink on paper or, you know, megabytes in your phone or whatever it is. He gets so much of the word of God about him. Why? I think that there is a perspective that David possesses about who God is. The ideas that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, about the kindness of God. David had a very real reality of a God that was filled with love and delight for him, even when he fell short of success, even when he sinned. That was David's great strength. And we know it. I quote it all the time. It's one of my favorite, favorite ideas. It's one of my favorite doctrines because you look at David and you look right through the scriptures. Acts 17, 8, say, he says, God, keep me as the apple of your eye. That's a strong statement to make to God. <laughs> hey, God, remember me, the apple of your eye, the one you love. That's David, Acts 17. He's the author. Look at it. The author of Acts 18. It's David. You rescued me. Why? Because you delighted in me. You rescued me because you delighted in me. Psalm 51 is a, it's an intriguing scripture and most of us are pretty familiar with it. It's a psalm of David and, and let me just read, you know, sometimes one of the most fun things to do in your God time is to read the little introduction of the psalm before the psalm because it, sometimes it gives you a little window into David's life when he wrote it. If you were to read Psalm 51, it says, For the director of music, this is right before verse 1, a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So David commits adultery. Nathan comes, calls him out. And now here's David's response. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing Love. It's interesting. Shouldn't David start off the verse saying, I'm a worm, I'm lame, I'm pathetic. Oh, smite me, almighty smiter. God, I am dust. Oh, I want to die. Starts off, have mercy on me, O God. According, not according to my attainment, not according to the good things that I've done, not according to my lineage, not according to the anointing that you anointed me with back when I was on the back hills of Bethlehem and you said I was going to be king. Not because I did some successful things for Israel and I killed Goliath, remember that? Not according to my spiritual resume. According to your unfailing love. According, it just keeps going, to your great compassion. Remember Luke 15? father saw him was filled with compassion ran to him hugged him and kissed him and then look at this according to your great compassion blot out my transgressions he says delete it remember me as if they were deleted blot them out God you who are able to see the willing spirit within me, blot out my transgressions. 
We don't really use the word blot out. That's not really a part of our language. But I want you to just take this blot out. I mean, get rid of it. Most of us have a hard time with that idea. Most of us, if we were honest and we were going to talk about our own journey, nice to talk about someone in the Bible, but if we're going to talk about our own journey, I'm talking about going to Pikes Peak Community College. I'm talking about praying, you know, here in the furnace, being a part of what God's called you to be about, being in 24-7, doing what you do, and we're talking about real things. I mean, you're talking about the greed that you possess. You're talking about the pride that you have. We're talking about slander. We're talking about being uh, bitter towards leadership. We're talking about lust. We're talking about uh, slanderous about your friends. We're talking about some of those things. If we were to talk about those things, it's really hard for us to talk about blotting out. I mean, if we were to say anything, we, we, we really couldn't get the concept of delete. I mean, I love computers, you know, in, in, in the new age right now, the computer age, you're typing and you're trying to, you know, type out a paper for, your school, for school or whatever, or because uh, you missed a prayer meeting and you got to write out a long summary or something, and you're typing and you, and you misspell a word. Let's say you misspell the word the. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I know that would never happen, but... Let's say you went to public school and you misspell the word the. All right? So you spell the word the, T-H-A, tha. All right? And you wanted to delete. You wanted to back up. All it is, it's this beautiful little button. It is just precious. It's just, it's just so easy. It's just a little pinky. You're right pinky. Just boop. It's just right there. Right? And delete. It's gone. And you go with, you know, E and you're done. And delete's like, boop, right there, it's easy. I mean, just boop, I mean, that, the, boom, I mean, it's 10 seconds, or two, one second. Depending on how fast a typer you are. 10 seconds. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, the, all right. <laughs> if it's 10 seconds, you're lame. But anyway, so my point is, is that it's very quick. Now, that didn't always, that didn't always used to be the case. I mean, it used to be, Back in the olden days in the 80s, back when like our moms and dads were, you know, barely teenagers, just kidding, a long time ago, that typists, if you, if, they, if you messed up on a typewriter, you either had to do one of two things. Either you threw the paper away and started over, or you took white out. And, and, and we don't even know what that is. That's not even a part of our world. We're like, white what? I mean, just not even, but white out, you know, the little stuff where you paste it on there and then you redo it kind of messy or if you were if most of us we don't really use pencils that much much except for math you know but back when you were a kid remember when you were a kid and you had a pencil number two pencil remember that remember when you used to take scantron tests right you took your act test praying to god that you would make something that started with a two and not a one (laughs) me and austin we were just praying for double digits right okay so sorry to drag you in that but anyway and so and then, and when you put a wrong answer and you went to erase it, right? With the old number two pencil. And you went to erase it, how often there was like, it wasn't like just a clean, like gone, it was like smudged. It was like, ooh, I wonder if the machine will pick that up, you know? Like, and then you'd rip it, you know, trying to get it off. And a lot of us, when we think, God, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, we don't think, blot out, delete my transgression. Let it not even be there. We think, I know I'm permanently smudged, but let me just get by. I know it's just like, I know I'm always going to look bad to you and I stink and I'm lame and I'm pathetic. And, but just let me, just, just cut, 
try to make it a little bit better and try to help me tomorrow. It's almost impossible. If you have a wrong image of God, it's almost impossible. If you don't see the kindness of God, if you don't see the compassion of your Father, it's almost impossible for you to even fathom, delete. Only thing you can fathom is I'm smudged, I'm smeared, I'm left with this leftover goo and I'm trying to be better, I'm trying to do well, trying to attain more, but because of my failure, I'm mostly smudged. I'm just, I don't know that I'll ever attain. And I want to tell you that not only does God, when you come to him and you say, Father, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love that never changes, that is like the parable in Luke 15, that is like you had for even David. Have that over my life. Not only do we have to get to where we believe that God can do delete, but you have to do delete. In other words, you have to begin to view yourself the way that God views you. You need a right image of God and then a right image of how God sees you. A right image of the kindness and the compassion of God and then a right image of how God doesn't see you as smeared but he sees you as the apple of his eye, Psalm 17. He sees you as a child that he loves, a sheep he's willing to go after, a prodigal that's come home. He sees you with kindness. I mean, imagine, what if David... When they wanted to make him king, Saul's dead. David, let's anoint you king. Here we go. What if David said, God, I can't do it. I was just actually fighting against this Israel army. Count me out. Tell you what, let me just be one of the soldiers. I'm not bad. I'm pretty good with the sling. And let me just be in the Israelite army. Surely I can't be king because I've proven that I can't be trusted in difficult scenarios. I can't be close to you, God, anymore. After all, do you remember the Bathsheba story? Hello? Uriah is dead, and it wasn't an accident. Surely I can't draw near to you. Surely I should settle with a lame devotional life, because surely you see me as smudged. Sure, you see me as according to my sin. See, one of the powers that David possessed was not just how much God loved him, not just believing it, but he even came to the point where he moved forward in seeing himself the way that God saw him. Instead of saying, I can't take and be king, I can't move forward, he said, God, you see me as the apple of your eye. You rescued me because you delighted in me. You love me. You delight in me. You enjoy me. Verse 9, verse 1, according to your unfailing love, not because I deserve it. Verse 9, blot out my iniquity. Chapter 51 of, of Psalms. Verse 12, look at this. Not, not just, we're not just talking like God, you know, forgive me. David actually says, restore, restore joy. <laughs> not just, hey, I fell miserably short, but you delighted me, you see me. And he says, Restore joy and a willing spirit in me because right now I don't feel willing. 
I feel backslidden. But restore joy in the journey again. Restore a willing spirit in me. Renew me. And in my shame, I don't become cynical. In my shame, I don't take five steps back. In my shame, I don't surrender to giving up on extravagant pursuit of God. And if you're able to actually press delete on yesterday or yesteryear or yesterdecade, if you're actually able to believe in the kindness and the mercy of God, if you're actually able to let that go in and be a part of not only how you see God, but how you believe God sees you, it strengthens you not to take advantage of it, to say, hey, I guess I'll go pursue sin because after all, you know, God's going to forgive me over and over again. But when there's authentic relationship there, when it's really that he loves me that much, then rather than looking at the mandate to aim for all that God will give, as a law, you see it as an opportunity because your foundation is love. When Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, so we make it our goal to please him. Are we make it our goal to bring pleasure to God. We make it, I love the way the New King James Version says it, it says, we aim for it. We aim to bring pleasure to God. I have found in my own journey that one of the greatest ways to live this out is to actually view your life in 24-hour increments. How many men over the last seven years, seven and a half years, have I sat with in accountability groups where, where their temptation is to say, I am greedy, I'm filled with lust, my pride never seems to go away, Therefore, I'll just be content with that. I'll try to do better. And hopefully by the time I'm 50, I'll be in a purer spot, a more generous spot, and I'll be a little bit closer to God. It is so common in the way that we actually think. But I know the way forward. The way forward is if you'll walk in a 24-hour period where when you fail, you say, God, press delete on yesterday, and this morning, I aim to bring pleasure to you. If you're able to look at the arrogance of yesterday, the lust, the sin, and press delete, And look at a new day and aim. Now, the temptation is to say, you know what? Because I mostly believe I, that I'm pathetic, I'm a sinner, I'm a murderer, I'm an adulterer, I'm a horrible person. I mostly believe that. Therefore, I'm not going to aim for godliness. I'm not going to aim for godwardness because I mostly see myself in it, it, how I see myself rather than how God sees me through Jesus. If I mostly see myself, then I don't aim. I don't aim with everything. I come up with a cynical reason why it's not necessary or why it's impossible. And because it's impossible, I don't aim. But Paul says we aim to bring him pleasure. We pursue it. It's not like, 
we fall into it and we're just glad to be there. There's a, a striving and a yearning. Philippians 3 it says we press on. There is a renewal in the morning where you get up and you say, I aim for something high today. I press. I make it my goal. And let me tell you something. You can. You can. C-A-N. You can. It is possible to go 24 hours without lusting. It is possible. People have done it. It is possible to go a day, a 24-hour period, without being a glutton. Difficult with the Briargate shops a couple miles down the road, but possible. Difficult when you have a credit card and Taco Bell's open until 2 a.m., but possible. It is possible to go a day without lusting. It is possible to go a day without being a glutton. It's possible, I know, crazy, it's possible to go a day without stealing. And if it's possible to do it one day, is it possible to do it two days? And if it's possible to do it two days, is it possible to do it three days? And not only is it possible to live with the absence of some of those things, but it's also possible to go one day of spending time alone with God. It's also possible to live with compassion. It's also possible to go a day where you pray. It's also possible to go a day where you don't possess bitterness, but you respond to people that are cynical and mean towards you with kindness. And if it's possible to go a day, is it possible to go two? I mean, when Paul says we aim, we make it our goal, he's not saying, hey, you know, we're pathetic losers and lame. We aim for something that's high and lofty, not achievable. No, he's saying we aim for something based on the knowledge of God, based on the love of God, because love of God is such a foundation because we can look at yesterday, and when we fall short, we go, delete. And if God's kindness is real, then aiming on a new day to bring Him pleasure is possible. Why? Because you're not measured based upon your spiritual resume. You're based upon Jesus and the cross and His kindness. And if that be true... I mean, okay, let me say it this way. Imagine how ludicrous it would be if an NBA basketball team coach said, you know what? We lost the game tonight, fellas. So let's not even practice tomorrow. We're going to lose again. No. The very nature of the huddle post the loss is, let's go get them tomorrow. Be here early. Let's practice hard. Let's aim high tomorrow. We can win. It's possible to win. It would be ludicrous for him to say, eh, we're kind of a losing team. Let's just lose again tomorrow. Let's just lose again the next day. Victory is possible. It's not possible because you're going to grit your teeth and be a religious, you know, holier-than-thou person. But I tell you, a person immersed the God in his kindness could be that kind to a David that fell so short. I just ask you this. If David, if David can be called a man after God's own heart and is a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer, why do we have a tendency to give up?
Psalm 57, 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Takes a determination. I like to say we have to re-sign up every day. You can't, I signed up when I was 18. I signed up at the youth conference. (sighs) No, in time, your heart goes downstream. The number one way is every morning, God, I re-sign up today. I want your mercy to be new today. I want your kindness to be real to me today. I want to view you as a loving father on this day. I want to view you the way that you see me. I want to do that correctly today. I know in my own life, I love to make it a a 24-hour thing. Make it a new day. I think we see that in in, in David, even in the psalmist. I mean, Psalm 5.3, he says, In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. When you get up in the morning, your temptation is to lay there, be filled with anxiety, think about the tasks of the day, think about all that you have to do. But if you'll start off, God, Here I am. I come before you. I wait on you. I love you today. 24 hours. Start off your morning. Psalm 59, 16. I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love. In the morning, I'll sing of your love. Oh, come on. That's just, that's just David's life and David's rhetoric. Make it yours. Sing of your love. God, in the morning, you're going to be the first thing on my lips. In the morning, your loving kindness, who you are. The love of God is the first thing on my lips. And look at this, Psalm 63, verse 6. At the end of the day. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Now this is... This is a little hint, a little secret. If you will begin starting off your morning, I press delete on my failure of yesterday. I define my day based upon the loving kindness of a merciful father who delights in me. And then at night, not allow the anxiety, the fear, but just actually talk to God. Do you know when you're the largest... The, the largest temptation, the number one time where you start to feel, be filled with fear and anxiety, it's at night when you're tired and you're about to go to bed and you start to worry about tomorrow. The number one time that most people have a difficulty with lust, immorality, late at night, right here. If you'll take this, and turn it into prayers at night and actually do right here like the psalm says on my bed I remember you on my bed I'm talking when you're going to bed at night whether you put a journal by your bed a bible by your bed maybe you you know check a Jesus MySpace whatever it is think of him before you go to bed and talk to him I'm talking out loud conversation if you'll just trust me if you'll start talking to God Before you go to bed, out loud to God, 
at night. A, your roommates will think you're nuts. B, you'll find less anxiety, less fear, and you'll find a peace in your heart. I know in my own journey, in my own journey, one of the things that I struggle with is fear. So when I come before God, I say, God, I trust in you. The last words of my day are not, you know, up late watching a movie and the last thing that you do is fill your brain with a bunch of nonsense. The last thing you do is fill your brain with Letterman. Or the last thing you do is fill your brain with five different MySpace pages dying to have more friends that aren't real friends. Or, or fill your brain with any of the, the, if the last thing, I'm just, I'm just telling you concretely, if you'll spend it verbally talking out loud to God. Not like, oh, God, I'm talking out loud. I'm talking, use your, your tongue, use your words. That's what I say to my toddlers. Use your words. If you'll use your words, say to God, okay, God, on my bed, I remember you. God, thank you. I, uh, since I've become a, you know, a dad, Renata and I have decided that, you know, at night, we do it, could possibly be something that you had when you were a child. You know, bedtime prayers, bedtime scriptures. Renata and I have started saying, you know, to our kids, bedtime prayers and scriptures at night. And I find that it's not just a habit for good parenting. You know what it does to my heart and my soul? It's a, whole, it's a whole lot difficult to end the day ticked off, frustrated, mad, and filled with lust and greed and pride when you're leading a four-year-old or a three-year-old thanking God for this wonderful day, thanking God for Jesus, thanking God for who he is. So I have decided to reinstitute bedtime prayers for all gathering attenders. I don't care if you're 21, 25, 18. I want you to try it for one week. This week, when you get up in the morning, talk to God. At night, just try bedtime prayers like when you were five. And not now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Repeat back to God the scriptures that have come alive to you that day. Or try praying for the person that you hate. Or try blessing the leader that drives you insane. Does that make sense? And verbally, to God, out loud, say out loud. Bedtime prayers. Here's what I want to encourage you. Tonight, listen to me. Each one of you, you have a God that loves and delights in you. When you mess up and you will when you sin look to God and say God according to your unfailing love blot out my transgressions according to your unfailing love delete and not only do you delete it but God help me not to live in the smear and the smudge and the goo I want to be a new day clean before you I want to see myself like you see me it's a new day so I'm going to aim to bring you pleasure. I'm going to make it my goal. I'm going to strive. Psalm 57, I'm going to live steadfast for you today. You stand with me?
I'd like us just to take a few minutes. I want you just to get in little huddles of three. Little huddles of three. And I want you to pray these ideas over each other. Little huddles of three. Everybody here, get into these little huddles. You, can, you, can, uh, you don't have to be just the person next to you. You can go get with someone that you know better if you're uncomfortable. But I just want us to take a few minutes and I want you to pray these ideas back to God and pray for each other. It's hard to be vulnerable, but I want to encourage you, if you can, step out, be vulnerable, pray for each other, be open, be real, and let's really try to do this thing right, okay? Let's really try to see ourselves even as God sees us. Let's try to see Him right. You've just heard one of the speakers from Desperation, a ministry of New Life Church in Colorado Springs. For more information on becoming a Desperation intern, attending one of our conferences, or joining the Desperation National Network for local churches, visit us at desperationonline.com.